Amen. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, next week, we're going to wear blue. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1, going through uh, verse 13. Continuing our series in the book of Mark, starting in Mark 7, verse 1, going through verse four, 13. <clears throat> now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. Pastors, police officers, teachers, some groups of people should always be the good guys. By virtue of the responsibility they've been given and the respect society has traditionally had for them, we should automatically think good guys. We should automatically think good things when we hear those groups mentioned. But do we? Within the last two weeks, I've heard of a pastor that I thought I knew very well who had been caught having an affair, stealing the church's money, committing other various crimes. Every few months, we see footage of some police officer who's now uh, on trial for murder, having unjustly or wrongly performed his duties. Similarly, teachers, I can't throw th scroll through Facebook without seeing a story about a teacher who's thrown some kid up against a wall or was having an inappropriate relationship with a student. These instances of people within these groups who claim a title of nobility and respect, they're part of the groups of the good guys, but they don't follow through on that responsibility in their actions. When they do that, they erode our trust in those groups. They're saying one thing, but they're doing another. Their hypocrisy affects how we view them. Pharisees, in the biblical text, are in much the same boat. When we hear the biblical story today, what we typically think of when we hear Pharisee is bad guy. We think antagonist. We think the villain in the story. But in the time, they would have been viewed with respect, reverence, they would have been assumed to be the good guys, assumed to be doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. But now that their hypocrisy has been exposed by Christ, we tend to view them differently. A hypocrite is one who claims to believe and act one way, but actually doesn't live up to that claim. They don't live up to what they claim to believe with their actions. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the exact same religious hypocrisy that the Pharisees did. So from our text this morning, we can see four signs of religious hypocrisy. 
four signals to let us know when we're falling into the same trap of religious hypocrisy that the Pharisees fell into. First of all, religious hypocrisy has a spirit of, of competition. Verses 1 and 2. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The first sign of religious hypocrisy from the text is that a religious hypocrite has a spirit of competition. See, he thinks he's better than you. These were the elites. These were the Pharisees and the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They were the A-team. Jerusalem, as the religious center, would have been where the best of the best went to study, where the best of the best went to teach, to live, to perform the office of priest and scribe and teacher. They think they're better than you. And because they think they're better than you, they're always looking for your shortcomings. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They were intently observing the behavior of the disciples to compare themselves to the followers of Jesus. Under no other circumstances would the religious elite, the A-team, have cared what this ragtag group of misfits were doing. Only people in a race tend to care how fast the other guy's running. They were looking at the disciples so that they could know their enemy. And that's what hypocrites tend to do. We tend to scrutinize the conduct of others while giving grace to ourselves. Does that apply to you? When you see someone else's sin, when you notice, when you look at them, are you looking trying to find something wrong with them? Are you looking trying to justify yourself in your own eyes? Are you looking, hoping that they'll mess up so that you can feel like you're a little bit better than they are? That's what the religious hypocrite tends to do. And I think we fall into that more often than we would try to explain that we would. They were looking at the followers of Jesus and they had an issue with their hygiene? Really? These men had just traveled the countryside. They were healing. They were spreading the gospel. They were performing miracles. But the Pharisees think that their hands are just a little too dirty before dinner. They were approaching the disciples with a spirit of competition. They wanted to compare themselves to see where the disciples didn't measure up. That's what religious hypocrisy tends to do. But religious hypocrisy also takes a stance of condemnation. That's the second sign of religious hypocrisy in our text this morning. It takes a stance of condemnation. Look at verse 3. For the, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. The Pharisees didn't like that the disciples weren't washing properly the way they understood that. This practice probably wasn't about cleanliness in the way we typically tend to think about it today. We wash our hands before dinner so we don't eat with dirty hands so we don't get sick. This was likely for them, though, a ceremonial washing. They were talking about a, a religious purity, a spiritual purity, even in the act of eating, that they would wash off the sins that had accumulated around them because they had gone about in the world. And now that they had done that, they were ready to eat. This was an unnecessary pomp and ceremony that was added to an everyday practice of eating. And they did this holding fast to tradition over Christ. The end of verse 3, holding to the tradition of the elders, these traditions, washing before they ate, was a tradition of the elders. So they were made by those who were respected, the fathers of the religion whom these people looked up to. The, the Pharisees of long past were the ones who made this practice. In order for this to stop, legacies would be torn down. If people could go on not washing before they ate, it meant that the people who came before them had been wronged. 
But the problem is that though this was the tradition of the elders, this wasn't the tradition that was made by God. This wasn't a commandment given by God to those elders. There is no command in the Old Testament law to wash like this before you eat. They created this command, not God. That's the crucial distinction here. Anything made by man can and maybe even should be replaced. Newness isn't simply wrong in and of itself. Newness is where growth tends to happen. We are made new in Christ. Without that, we would continue to be the old creation. So we shouldn't be afraid of new things, but newer isn't always better. Had God made these traditions, then yeah, they should have been guarded from new innovation. There are some things that God's given us directly in His Word. Those commands, what He has told us, those should not be innovated. Those should not be discarded. There are some things He's told us about how we should function as a church, how we should worship Him. Those things can't be innovated. But if we're talking about something new, which isn't contradicting a clear scriptural command, then we have to at least be open to that possibility, lest we end up like the Pharisees. And ending up like them is so easy because though their tradition was unnecessary, though we look back on it now and say that it didn't make any sense, it served a purpose once. There's a reason they did that. They weren't washing their hands before they ate because they got bored before they ate. They did it because they thought they had to. Most traditions are this way. They were started as the best practice of the time. But as the time changed, the need for the practice disappeared. So now, when we have this tradition, oftentimes we're left with an unnecessary structure that hinders rather than helps us. It hinders rather than helps the process at hand. It doesn't help us reach our goals because we're holding too fast to the tradition that's there. There once was a woman who was making her family a ham dinner. But this time, her daughter was watching her. The mother, just like always, took the ham, put it on the counter, took a knife, and cut a few inches off of each end of the ham. She threw them away and then placed the ham in the oven. The daughter, thinking this was kind of strange because the ends just got thrown away, asked her mother, why did you, why did you do that? After thinking for a second or two, the mother said, you know, I don't know. My mom always did it. But now curiosity had taken hold. So she said, okay, I've got to call her. I've got to figure out why she did that. So she called her mother and asked, mom, why did you always cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the oven? And the grandmother laughed and said, well, I only had 10-inch pans. I had to. It wouldn't fit. See, now the daughter was just doing it because that's what she'd always seen. It's what had always been done. But now all it was doing was costing her and her family a little bit more ham every time they had some. The tradition that made sense once no longer held. It no longer served a purpose. She'd been holding fast to the tradition long past its usefulness, long past its necessity. But it was a rule, and we as humans tend to really like rules. They make sense to us. And religious hypocrisy has a lot of rules to it. It has a whole system of rules. Look at verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. See, the Pharisees just didn't like that the disciples didn't have as many rules as they did. They had many other traditions that they observed. They were all man-made. They were all uncommanded. They were all held to unnecessarily. They had religious rules about pots and dining couches. 
eventually we just have to say, that sounds ridiculous, right? Surely we as a church aren't putting out rules for how you're supposed to wash the chairs around your table when you go to eat dinner. That's effectively what they were doing. All these traditions, all that they had, they were all due to, had to do with cleansing. That reveals that they weren't just neat freaks. They weren't just germaphobes. What they were trying to do is to clean themselves up. They were trying to earn a place before God by washing themselves and making themselves clean. They thought that they could do it on their own. That's legalism. They thought that they could save themselves, that they could continually wash, and by that washing, they would actually make themselves ready to go before God. And that fault, that misstep, is what always happens when you actually get away from the gospel. There's no small error when it comes to truth and your justification. If you take Jesus and add anything, what you end up with is nothing. All you can hold to, all you can keep is the gospel. J.C. Ryle once said, Once leave the king's highway of truth, and we may end with washing pots and cups like Pharisees and scribes. There's nothing too mean, too trifling, or too irrational for a man if once he turns his back on God's word. Once we just deviate a little bit from the gospel, just a little bit from what God's revealed to us, what we're going to do is find ourselves in a tradition, in a place, in a religious system that has us really focused on cleaning pots and pans and not really focused on the worship of the God of the universe. We have to remember that we are supposed to hold fast to the gospel. We can't leave the truth of the gospel. The Pharisees had done that. They left the truth of the gospel, and so they landed at the assumption that anything other than their rigid system must have been bad. So they were condemning any other system. Verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? See, they didn't just see the disciples as new. They didn't just see them as different. They saw what they were doing as evil. They said, they're eating with defiled hands. They are doing wrong. They are sinning when they do that. So they wanted to talk to the manager. They went to Jesus about his disciples. They said, what we do is best, and that's the only way to do it. So why don't they do what we do? Anything else is lesser, and therefore it must be worse. And since we're talking about cleansing, it's not just lesser, it's not just worse, it's probably evil. They saw what was happening as the disciples spitting on the tradition of the elders, forsaking that which they had passed down, the legacies of the people who had come before them. And sometimes an improvement can feel disrespectful of what came before it, as if the old ways should be disowned, forgotten, or condemned. But that doesn't always have to be true. Very often the newness, the the innovation, couldn't come about without what was old. What once was can have value that's actually enhanced by the introduction of the now is. In our membership class last week, I talked briefly about the history of our church. And we have a proud history of gospel faithfulness in this place as a body since 1894. That's a long time. That's a good history, and we should be very proud of that history. In any change, in whatever change that may come about in our church, it's my hope that you never interpret anything I do and think that I'm spitting on the legacies of what came before us. But as I said last week in the class, 
I think the best way for us to honor our past, to honor our history, is to make sure this church has a future. To make sure that the legacy continues, that we keep going forward. That in a hundred years, they'll still say, this church started in 1894. That we can continue going on and performing the task that God has given us to do. As great as our past is, I firmly believe that the greatest days of Pleasant Grove Baptist Church are ahead of us. So let's be more open than the Pharisees were when change might come about, when traditions may shift, when the way we do things may change. We have to honor what came before us by making sure that what came before us continues on into the future. But the Pharisees here, when they saw the disciples and their conduct as spitting on the elders, they assaulted the righteousness of Christ. They went to the leader and they said, how could you possibly allow your disciples to be defiled in this way? They assumed if he was going to allow those things to continue, that he must have known about their sin. He must have known about the evil they were doing, that he was tacitly allowing this to continue. They said, if your people are so bad... What must you be like to do nothing to stop it? Not only did they think Christ was evil to allow this, they saw themselves as holy in this instance. They went to the God of the universe who had took on flesh for their salvation and said, you're messing up. We know what to do better than you do. They were, only unde- they were the only undefiled ones in their own eyes. A religious hypocrite majors in the perceived sins of others and tends to minor in his own sins. Is that true of us? Do we have a stance of condemnation to go along with our spirit of competition when we look at someone else around us? Religious hypocrisy may have a spirit of competition or a stance of condemnation, but it also tends to worship with the mouth and not the heart. That's the third way we can tell that we've fallen into religious hypocrisy this morning from verses 6 and 7. Religious hypocrisy worships with the mouth and not the heart. Religious hypocrisy is hypocritical, Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Jesus immediately diagnosed what was happening here when they came to him. The issue was never about washing your hands. The issue was that these men had made a system that they now worshipped while giving just lip service to the worship of God. So Jesus, knowing exactly what's happening, goes right at them. He holds nothing back from the get-go. He calls them hypocrites right to their faces. And in doing so, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, 13. So with this quote in chapter 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's three takeaways we could have from him quoting that verse here. First of all, worship of the mouth only is no worship at all. We have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. James 1.22 says, But you must be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That if you merely speak what you're supposed to speak, but do not do what you're supposed to do, you're deceiving yourself. You could come here every week, have perfect attendance, sing every song, sing it beautifully, sing it loudly, but if that's all you do, You're not a doer of the word. You're a hearer. You're a speaker. You're worshiping only with your mouth and not with your heart. And therefore, you are deceiving yourself. 
The second takeaway from uh, Christ's quote of Isaiah 29, 13 is that you can say or do all the right things and not be a follower of Christ. You could do exactly what you're supposed to do. You could fulfill every command that you've ever heard. You could give your whole life in service of a church. You could go to a soup kitchen every Wednesday evening. You could give little old ladies rides to church every Sunday morning. But if you're not a follower of Christ, it doesn't matter. You can say or do all the right things and not be a follower of Christ. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Christ is speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can say or do all the right things. You can follow every command the best way you possibly can. But if you don't know Christ, if you aren't actually following him, it's of no service to you. And you can say or do all the right things and still not be a follower of Christ. The third takeaway from uh, Christ's quote of Isaiah 29, 13 is, is that where the heart is is what matters. You see, talk is cheap. You can say whatever you want to. But being a disciple, someone who follows Christ, someone who takes up their cross and every day says, I'm gonna do what Jesus has asked me to do today. I want to strive and pursue and look after who he is today. That's costly. That's not easy. It's hard. But it's worth it. And that's the only way to actually be a follower of Christ. It's the only way to actually avoid religious hypocrisy is to follow the Christ of the religion rather than following the religion which claims to follow the Christ. You have to follow him. Religious hypocrisy tends to worship in vain, verse 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If your heart doesn't match your words, then your worship is in vain. It doesn't matter. Again, you could come here every week and sing beautifully, but if you're not actually praising and worshiping God when you sing, it's in vain. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your breath. It doesn't matter how well you sing, how loudly you do it. If you're actually worshiping, that's what matters. Your worship is in vain if you're only worshiping with the mouth and not the heart. Religious hypocrisy also tends to believe incorrectly. That's the root problem with all of their sin here. The end of verse 7, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Their worship was in vain. Their practice was in vain because what they believed was incorrect. They weren't just teaching the doctrines of men. They believed them. Your heart is the ultimate seed of your worship, but your heart cannot be wholly right without a firm foundation in the truth of God's word. Improper worship is actually a problem of wrong belief. It's a doctrinal issue. If what you believe is false, you cannot live rightly. So theology matters. Theology is for you. You can't afford to say the doctrine doesn't matter, that it's just my job as the pastor to know the truth and my job alone. Your soul is at stake based on what you believe. So what you have to do now is delve into the word of God, read it, study it, 
daily submit yourself to its teachings so that you can understand what's true and avoid the errors that the Pharisees fell into. You can walk in light of the gospel by pursuing the gospel in his word day in, day out. That's the only way to end up truly worshiping with the heart instead of merely the mouth, as religious hypocrisy does. The fourth reason, or the fourth sign of religious hypocrisy in our text this morning is that religious hypocrisy focuses on the form rather than the substance. It's the final signal in our text that religious hypocrisy focuses on the form rather than the substance. It focuses on men rather than focusing on God. Look at verses 8 and 9. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. See, the problem isn't that they held to the traditions of men. Traditions in and of themselves could be really life-giving. They could be really helpful. Some traditions are fantastic and we should continue them. The issue was that they held to the traditions of men. They held to the form And in so doing, they left the commandments of God. They left the substance. They didn't do what they were actually told to do because they were too busy following the tradition that they wanted to follow. They'd forgotten that the point of the law, the point of the rules which God gave to us, is to find God in Christ. For us to see and worship Him in the commands that He's given. Commandments are meant to lead us into further life in Christ. They're not supposed to stifle us, to stifle our life, to lead us into further sin, to make us feel like it's a weight on our shoulders. It's supposed to help us pursue joy in living in line with the design of the God of the universe. What's at stake in them forsaking the commands of Christ, which they were doing here, is authority, and specifically the authority of Scripture. To enhance or replace the commandment of God shows that you think it's insufficient. And ultimately what it does is it reveals your rejection of it. They were following men rather than God. And you can only do one. You can follow men or you can follow God, but you can't follow both. That's what they fell into in their religious hypocrisy. But they were also holding rules over and above people. They would rather have their rules than help people. Verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. See, he rebukes them using this very law that they've been rejecting. Honor your father and mother is a central command of the law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the only one given with a promise. It comes back over and over. And the penalty here, which Christ cites in verse 10, is that whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. There is a death penalty associated with failure to honor your father and mother. It was the most important pieces of the law that were handed down by God to Moses. They carried a death penalty if you weren't following these. But following them is hard because honoring someone isn't like a simple formula. Like do not murder, it's pretty cut and dry. You know whether you've done that or not. Honoring your father and mother, that created some kind of ambiguity, some kind of gray area where the religious hypocrite found a spot where they thought, this is what I can do. I can deny the command by creating this other system. This instance speaks to 
the provision that was expected by the children to care for the parents in their old age, personally and financially. That was how they honored their father and mother. That as their parents got older and were not able to provide for themselves, the children would then start to take care of them. That was how they continued to honor their father and mother, even in their older age. But the tradition that had been created said that you could declare the funds you were supposed to be using in this way as korban. You could say, you know what, instead of helping my father and mother in this instance, I'm going to donate that money to the church. I'm going to make sure that that church has uh, these ceremonial pieces. They're given in honor of my mother and father. While the mother and father is languishing in poverty and despair. They created a tradition that allowed them to appear to be righteous, to appear to be religious, to seem like they knew what they were doing, that they were very pious. But in so doing, they abandoned the commandments of God. Declaring something as korban would relieve yourself of the responsibility of honoring your mother and father. It was an easy religious way out of doing something hard, something that's costly, something that's convenient, inconvenient. It made them look very religious and pious without actually helping anyone or serving God. It nullified the good command of God because they made a loophole. They found a gray area and they made a loophole while claiming to be fulfilling the command of God. And that's the way of the hypocrite. That's how we tend to operate. We live on loopholes. We live on technicalities. We thrive on what may seem ambiguous so that we can hold on to a degree of credibility in the eyes of men. We find maybe if I just adjust this command a little bit, I can seem like I'm following it without it actually costing me anything. And when God sees that, he knows what's going on because he sees the heart and not merely the outward appearance. And this wasn't the only practice they had It's just a simple illustration that Jesus chose. It was an obvious illustration that Jesus chose. See, it said, and many such things you do. It wasn't like they were nailing it, but they had this weird practice of korban. They had many such things. but They were denying the commands of God over and over and over again to find a way to make themselves appear to be righteous, to hold fast to the commandments and traditions of men over and above the commands of God. See, there's never just one area of sin in our lives. If we allow sin a single foothold, our entire disposition is at stake. Sin has to be killed daily, has to be killed at the root. There's never just one deviation from the heart of our faith. We never just have that one area of the Korban thing. We have many such things that we do. We have to intentionally and purposely hold fast to the truth of our faith so that we can keep ourselves from error. We have to diligently avoid becoming hypocritical, holding fast to a tradition of legalism rather than pressing into the glory of the gospel. The reason we think Pharisees are the bad guys is because they were hypocrites, because Christ called them hypocrites. He showed them to be hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs in a different section in the gospels. Over and over and over again, it's shown that the Pharisees claimed to believe, claimed to follow God, but they completely missed the Christ who was right in front of them. They completely missed God who had come in the flesh for their salvation. And I think that's the fate of most religious hypocrites. That for most of us, 
If we fall into an area of hypocrisy, when we start to think that we can justify ourselves by holding fast to whatever traditions we have, we end up in a place where we miss Christ in the midst of all of it, even as we're holding really fast and really true to what we see in front of us. That's why we think they're the bad guys. And if we're not careful, we can become the bad guys just like them by falling into a religious hypocrisy that has a spirit of competition. It's looking how to compare ourselves to others, a sense of condemnation, hoping to find just a little bit of fault in someone else so that we can think that we're better. By worshiping with the mouth and not the heart. Worship with the mouth and the heart. Let the worship of the mouth be an overflow out of the heart. That as the heart wells up with joy, it cannot help but exult in praise. That's how we should worship. That's how we should sing. That's how we should gather. That's how our lives should look. That we don't just do the things that we know we're supposed to do, but we do the things we know we're supposed to do out of love for the one who gave us those things. That's how we worship with the mouth and not just the heart. Or worship with both the heart and the mouth. Religious hypocrisy also focuses on the form rather than the substance. Let us hold fast to the substance of our faith. And any other form that we've created, if it gets in the way of the substance, let it fall away. Let us get rid of it. Let us hold fast to the substance of our faith, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pursue Him. Let's obey Him. In every act, in every deed, in every program, in every worship service, in every song, in every meeting. Worship the substance of Christ rather than merely the forms that we've created around us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to repent of our hypocrisy wherever that is, whatever that looks like. Thank you for pointing out to us the sinfulness that we tend to hide in religion. Thank you for loving us so much that you'll tell us something so hard. Let us hold fast to you. Hold fast to your commands rather than our traditions. Let us avoid a spirit of competition whenever we look at the people around us. Let us look at them not to condemn them, with the hope that we might save them in your gospel. Let us worship not just with the mouth, but also with the heart. And let us focus on you, the substance, rather than the form that we've created. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.